All right, Happy New Year, Salt City. I, uh, I feel like usually pastorally on a New Year's message, the thing that I try to grapple with uh, with our church is sort of a naive optimism, kind of this resolutions thing, these resolutions that people get hyped about that you're not even going to remember in two months. Um, and, and maybe there is a reality of that in the church, and there's obviously a lot of really exciting stuff going on for us as a congregation as a whole, but I think as I was preparing for this message, at least what I'm feeling and as I'm talking with you guys, uh, I think a lot of you at least, not all of you, but a lot of you are feeling something similar, is maybe not as much struggling with naive optimism, but struggling with how do I continue to have hope of it's been just a grind for the last couple of years, and I, I feel tired, and I love Jesus, and I have faith in him and all that stuff, but it takes a little bit more work to feel that and experience that at times. And when I'm talking to some of you guys, you're wondering, man, how do I, how do I experience God in my time with him? And you're, you're still grappling with some of the stuff that's been going on in culture, and you're feeling sort of the heaviness of that. And, and I think there's uh, something that happened in the Old Testament that we can begin to relate to. So one of the, the primary themes in the Old Testament is exile, uh, which was something that happened to Israel, the people of God, where they were conquered by a foreign nation and, and their cities were burned and they were taken captive or the people that were left, the remnant, were taken captive into a foreign land and forced to live in that land and we're trying to figure out how to follow God when it felt like a lot of his promises have been kind of crumbling. And uh, the types of things that they would have felt as they were experiencing exile, it would have felt deeply disorienting. It would have felt chaotic. It would have been full of confusion and and they would have been trying to grapple with how do we square what's happening in our life and what's happening in the world with the promises that God made to us as his people. It would have felt like there was this cloud over them that they didn't know when it was going to lift. And there would have been a lot of pain and suffering in their world. And I think Christians, more than, than any time that I can remember, can relate to those feelings. I think we can relate to this concept of exile, where in some senses the world feels chaotic and confusing to us, and for a lot of us it feels like the world is moving away from our Christian values and becoming more antagonistic towards our faith. And I think for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, I think we can relate to this kind of chaotic uh, difficulty of life in some sense of this isn't what I expected it to be or I'm confused by what's happening in the world. And so I want to jump forward in the book of Isaiah. So we're going to go out of order a little bit. And we're going to jump forward to Isaiah 51. And so if you want to flip there with me, that would be great. But the reason why we're doing that, the book of Isaiah breaks up into three main parts. The first part is when the people of God are not in exile yet, but they're anticipating exile. The middle section is when the people of God is written to them when they're already in exile. They're living in a foreign land. And then the final section is when they're returning home from exile. And I wanted to look at a text where Israel is in exile. 
and try to learn from them what it looks like to live well in the middle of sort of chaos and confusion, in the middle of exile. So how Isaiah 51 is structured is it's this this conversation between God and his people. It's this back and forth discussion. God starts it out talking about his servant and his salvation. Then the people of God respond to him. So let's pick it up there where God's people are questioning him in verse 9. So again, this is Israel talking to God. Verse 9. Awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generation of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Okay, let's stop there for a second. We've got dragons coming in. Uh, I, when I was reading it, I didn't expect to see dragons, okay? So let's just talk about what that is. So dragon is used as poetic, apocalyptic metaphor throughout scripture for evil, in particular Satan, but it also can be used just as a symbol of evil in general. And in the context here, he's talking about Egypt. So when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, he was saying they were the, Egypt was kind of the manifest presence of evil in the world, okay? So he's talking about Israel enslaved in Egypt. Verse 10, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? So poetic way to describe the whole Red Sea incident where God parted the Red Sea and God's people passed through to be saved from Egypt. Verse 11, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Verse 11 there is so good. It's so beautiful. We're going to come back to that. It's worth reading one more time. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. But what's happening here is this is actually a quote from Isaiah 35. So they're quoting a promise that God made to his people before they went into exile. That they were going to return home to their land and they were going to have gladness and joy and everything would be right in the world. But now they're in exile where everything is wrong with their lives and they're quoting it back to God saying, what's up? Why have you not come through on this promise? What happened? You said we were going to be full of gladness, but we're sitting here in Babylon where everything is wrong and it feels like we can't follow you. You promised us. They're they're calling God out and saying, when are you going to fulfill your promises? And when you look back up at verse 9, how it starts, it says, awake, awake. Again, Israel talking to God. They're accusing God of being asleep at the wheel of history. And they're saying, when are you going to wake up and come to our defense and make the world better and make our lives better? Some of you are asking questions like that. So maybe for a few of you, it's very explicit. It comes in the form of doubts where you look around the world or you look at your life, you look at suffering or things that you're confused by or promises of God that don't seem to be Uh, making sense or coming together, and and you're just externally doubting whether uh, the existence of God, whether he's real, and whether you should follow him. For others of you, maybe it's not that explicit, but you do have 
this internal questioning. And maybe you don't recognize it as that, but maybe it comes out sideways on you in anxiety or an attempt to control your life or fear because you're not sure if God really is going to come through for you and so you feel like you have to take control of your own life in order to be safe. But the reality of the human heart is, is when circumstances and the promises of God seem to be at odds, when what he described the world to be and our experience of the world seem to be fighting with each other, we tend to believe our experiences instead of the one who is in control of our experiences, the one who's sovereign over them. It's like the alignment in our cars is off, and if we let go of the steering wheel for a second, it's going to drift towards the ditch of doubt. If you let go, you're inevitably going to start failing to believe that God is good. And in those moments, it feels incredibly logical to question God. Why is the world like this? Why is my life like this? Shouldn't be Christianity be more than this? Isn't there more? It feels so logical to ask him those questions. But it's a trap. It was a trap for Israel. Because they had lost hope, they had developed this exile mentality. Instead of living in exile as lights to the world, a demonstration of their faith in God, regardless of what was going on around them, they were starting to abandon God. And, and they were becoming helpless. It's what William Taylor calls hopeless paralysis. That's how he describes an exile mentality. Hopeless paralysis, losing faith and just getting stuck and not knowing how to move forward. The imagery of this is found in verse 20 of Isaiah 51. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. Now, I'm no big game hunter, so I don't know. I've never seen an antelope in a net, uh, but I can picture what it's like, and you can too, right? Kind of flailing and kicking, probably pathetic in some ways, helpless, it's this imagery of kind of flailing but being trapped and not being able to move forward. Now, here's, here's what I want to talk to us about this morning just as a church. I think not just Salt City Church, but the church as a whole, is I think I'm starting to watch the, the church adopt an exile mentality. I think we're becoming like an antelope in a net. That as we face some of the, the suffering and adversity, as we've looked at our, our culture and been confused by what's happening in it, I see us sort of getting stuck, getting hopeless in some ways, having paralysis. And God's got beautiful plans for this world. And he wants to use us in those plans. And the Bible, yes, is realistic about the condition of human beings, but it also gives this unbelievable picture of how hopeful it is to believe in Jesus and how he will transform this place. He'll make it good, and he'll make it new, and he'll use you to do it. And I think it's becoming harder for us to believe those promises of God, and I think we're starting to fall into some hopeless paralysis. One of the primary things I'm hearing from Christians as we talk about the future of the world and the future of the church is pessimism. Doubt. Uncertainty about what's going to happen. Fear about where the world is going. And it almost has started to become a Christian position, <laughs> To look at culture and kind of shake our heads and just kind of leave it to go the direction that it's going. 
And I think it's because we're in some ways afraid. We've forgotten the promises of God. And as culture starts to feel more and more like Babylon, more and more like exile with a seemingly onslaught, a seeming ons- onslaught of uh, non-Christian values, behaviors, beliefs, I see Christians responding by standing outside of culture and outside of people who don't know Jesus and kind of shaking their head and being discouraged by where things are going. And we've developed a defensive posture towards culture, a kind of hunker down mentality, try to hold the faith, but don't let culture kind of infiltrate us. There was a a Marine's commercial and advertisement for the Marines a while back. My guess is some of you have seen it that just really caught my attention. I thought it was a really effective commercial. It starts out um, with this kind of chaotic scene. I think there's sort of some smoke in the distance or whatever, and there's these sounds of battle and some screaming, and then it shows some Marines running towards the battle, and, and there's this epic like narration over it. So I I Googled it and kind of wrote it down. Let me, let me read this to you. There, there are a few who run towards the sound of chaos, ready to respond at a moment's notice. When the time comes, we are the first to move towards the sounds of tyranny, injustice, and despair. Let me read that again. That is, that is a line. We are the first to move towards the sound of tyranny, injustice, and despair. The few, the proud, the Marines. And then it ends with this question on the screen, which way would you run? And as I watched it, I'm just like, man, that should be Christians. The people that run into the chaos, into the tyranny, into the injustice with hope and with strength because of our God. That we run to it, not away from it. Because we believe that God can transform it through us, not perfectly now, yes, all of those disclaimers, but that he will do something in the world because he promised that he'll do it. That's what the church should be. And I just wonder with that question, which way would you run? How how is the church answering that? How am I answering that right now? I think there's a part of us that wants to run the other way. And I want to ask you to consider to change that mindset in 2022. Hope in God and what he can do in the world, even through adverse circumstances, will help us run with boldness and hope and optimism to some of the chaos and brokenness in the world instead of having a hunkered down mentality, instead of being like an animal caught in a net. So how do we live well in exile? If we're not going to run away from the current situation, what does it look like to live well? Well, I want to point out three things. We remember, we rejoice, and we rest. Now, I know I just gave you three things, and they all start with the same letter. That's a very pastor thing to do. I couldn't help it, all right? Um, But that's where we're going to go. Remember, rejoice, and rest. Remember, verse 15. This is God's answer to Israel questioning him. This is how he responds. He says this, I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. He's saying, you accuse me of being asleep at the wheel of history. You want to know where I am? Go to the ocean in a storm 
and watch the waves crash on the beach. Watch the, the beautiful chaos of creation. That's where I am. I'm stirring that thing up with my pinky finger. You want to know where I am? I'm the Lord of hosts. I'm the ruler of angelic armies. I'm standing in control of every spiritual being in the universe, holding the whole thing together, and they have to ask me for permission to act. I'm holding everything together. I'm ruling over the heavens and the earth. That's where I am. So he starts out by talking about his power, that he holds creation and he holds the world in his hands and he's ruling it. And then in verse 16, he's going to talk about his presence. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Do you, do you see the connection here? He's talking about how he speaks a word into creation and then he connects it with the fact that they are his people. So God's word is so powerful that by his sheer desire, something exists. That's how this world was made, is God wanted it, wanted it to be made, and he spoke, and it happened. There, there's no more of a process than that. He can just do it at his will because he has total, absolute power. That's how his word works. And this is what he's saying to you, if you have trusted in Jesus, that by his word, you are his people. And being God's people means that he will never leave you or forsake you. That not only will he live near you, he will live in you by his spirit. And that you can't ever lose that presence. And so he's talking about his power. And through his power, he's speaking his presence into your life. And so he's looking at Israel, his people, and it applies to us. And he's saying, if you question if I'm powerful enough to remove your suffering, I spoke creation into existence. That I have the power to do what is good for you. And I know you don't see this as good. I know you don't fully understand my purposes in the world, but I'm completely powerful enough to be able to handle the world. I'm not lacking in sufficiency. And then you ask me if I'm present with you, if I've abandoned you. What I'm saying is I cover you in the shadow of my hand. I'm literally holding your very life in my hand and you are my people. I care deeply about you. More than anything else in my creation, I care about you, my people. And so he's using his power and his presence for your benefit, even if you don't understand that that's what's happening. That is what God is like, and that's what we need to remember constantly in this life. Remembering the character of God in the face of suffering or chaos in the world is the way to see the world for how it truly is. When we look around at our circumstances, we believe that we're seeing the world as it truly is, but we need to look through our circumstances and focus our lens onto the character of God because he is the ultimate reality of the world. Circumstances are fleeting. Your life is short, but he is the foundation of everything. He is what's real. And so seeing his character is seeing clearly. Forgetting his character, getting lost in circumstances is blinding yourself to what is actually happening. Exile is your present reality. This is what he's saying to his people, to the Israelites. Exile is your present reality, but it's not your ultimate or foundational reality. God's presence with them and their status as his people should have fundamentally changed their experience of exile. 
It didn't necessarily mean that they got out of exile immediately, but it means that he was with them in it and changing their experience of it. But we forget so easily how good God is. Our circumstances seem to be just right in our face and we can't get past them to see his character. And so we have to intentionally remember what God has done to prove to ourselves his goodness and that he comes through on his promises. Guys, think about what God has done for our church. There's so many things we could talk about here, but I mean, we mentioned it already today. This building, this gift to us, I, I remember... We, there was another building that we were going to purchase, and Drew and I were sitting in it with our architects the first week that we had to cancel church because of COVID. And we were sitting there looking at designs for this building that we had dreams for, and we got these alerts that we were going to have to cancel church that week, and we walked out the doors pretty much knowing that we were going to have to back out of that thing that we thought God had given us. And it was at the end of years of looking and thinking about this and praying for this. And I was so frustrated. Like I knew I should have faith and all that stuff. And Drew was doing his thing where he embraces suffering. And he's like, this is going to be great. And I was like, I hate this. <clears throat> and I knew I should have faith and trust God, but I didn't. I just was angry and just like, God, why aren't you doing this for our church? And terrified of like, what was this going to mean that we couldn't meet together and how are we going to function as a church? And look, guys, we're back together meeting and not only has he still provided us with a long-term home, but it in almost every way is better than the initial one that I wanted him to give us. It's just categorically better. God had something more for us. He was up to something. And I, I didn't I couldn't see it, but he could. And so he asked me to trust him. Think about the beginning of, of COVID. And I was listening to a lot of like kind of leadership things and church things on how to walk through this. And there were all of these dire predictions about just the future and about the church. There was all this stuff immediately that was like, the church isn't even going to gather in person like ever. It's just going to be all online and all this kind of dire things about how the church was going to die out. And has there been some things that have been hard? Yes. And are there churches that are struggling? Yes. But God, through all of those dire predictions, has blessed us and brought us through it. And I think we're more healthy than we've ever been. And through sort of the chaos in our culture over the years, we're not perfect. We're still learning. We're still trying to figure out how to handle these, these social issues and what it looks like to be people of light and love in the middle of those. And we haven't handled those absolutely perfectly, and we never will. But God has been so faithful to us, and our church is unified. And when I come here, I feel like it's one of the only places of sanity. Like I talk to you guys, I'm like, yes, like, like this is what... Christians should be. This is what this should look like. And you guys love each other and you support each other and you assume the best of each other, not the worst. Look at what God has done. He always comes through. But the reality is, is in the moment before we see him come through, it feels like he never will. We have these circumstances that look so dire and it's in that tension that we have to be people of faith. That because God has always come through in the past, he'll come through again this time. And so we have to look back and remember his goodness so that we can stand in faith regardless of what comes to us. 
Next, how do we live in exile? We've got to rejoice. Verse 11, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So looking back and remembering the promises of God can help you look forward and stand with certainty that he will fulfill his future promises. He will never let you down. He has never let you down and he never will let you down. And so when we look at just staggeringly beautiful promises like this that are coming in the future, we can stand in certainty that they will one day be a fact. God says that if you trust him, you will live in everlasting joy, that you will gain eternal, endless bliss in him. And that is as certain as if it has already happened. That is your future. There's no changing it. That's the end of the story. That's what you have coming to you. But hear this. It's not just that we have joy in the future in Christ. It's that we have joy in him now. And joy in him now is part of the way that we exercise our faith that he will fulfill his promises even though we haven't seen that ultimate fulfillment yet. Learning the art of obtaining gladness in Christ in this life is part of what it means to be saved, to walk in the light of salvation. Because we're so certain of our future glory, our future joy in Jesus that, that it starts to backfill into this life. And if God on that day will allow us to experience eternal bliss in him, then it's also true that we can experience joy in him now. Not fully, but we have access to it in him now. And living in that access of joy is the way that you demonstrate, one of the primary ways that you demonstrate faith that God is who he said he is, and that you demonstrate his goodness to the world. It's not only your Christian right, but your Christian responsibility to practice delight. That's part of what it means to follow God. And when you practice joy, it says the right thing about who God is. I think I've mentioned this to you before, but whenever I think about this idea, I, I think about my dad. Um, so my dad passed away when I was in high school, and uh, I've been thinking about him lately. It was around this time that he, that he passed away, and I've been thinking about his life and how I want to be like him. And I actually, I know Jesus today because my dad was joyful. I, I had heard the gospel, and it hadn't landed with me, and I needed to see it embodied in something. And the thing I saw it embodied in was my dad's joy as he was dying. As he was suffering from cancer, my dad was joyful. And he wasn't perfect, but he was the type of person that when he walked into a room, he changed the entire dynamic of the room through his joy. And when I saw that, I just looked at it and went, there's something supernatural about that. Like if you can find that in God, he must be good and he must be real. And it's, it's why I, I know Jesus. And I think this is a moment for us as Christians, more so than our answers, more so than our societal stances or our politics, to enter rooms with just this presence, just this lighthearted joy 
this faith that we have a good God. And I think it'll demonstrate to the world what he's like. And I think it'll be an invitation to know him and to know his goodness. But in order to cultivate that type of joy in this life, it's really important to remember that the joy we can experience in him in this life is not ultimate, but it's a taste of the coming ultimate reality in heaven. So we do have access to joy in him, but it's just a little bit of a taste of that day. So over, over Christmas, uh, I got to take a day trip to Chicago with, with Jessamy. Uh, we were at her family's place. They live not too far outside of Chicago. And so we left the, the kids with, with grandma and grandpa and just uh, took a trip just to have some fun together. And we went out to eat. And uh, it, we, we wanted to have this nice meal together. And, but I looked at you know the menu ahead of time. It's like, oh, this looks good, but the prices aren't too bad. Not too bad. And so we went but I don't know if you've ever had this bait and switch happen to you at fancy restaurants, but sometimes you go to a fancy restaurant and the prices don't look too bad, but that's because they're incredibly small portions. And so you sit down and immediately our, our server is like, yeah, so a typical meal for two here would be one snack, two appetizers, two to three appetizers and two mains. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a far fancier meal than I was expecting. Uh, but it was delicious and, and we had fun. Um, but the first thing they they brought out to us was an amuse-bouche. I can't say that word very well. Amuse-amuse-bouche, something like that. Anyway, if you don't know what that is, it's this, like, it's this one bite that is sort of this uh, little sample of the meal to come that's supposed to get you excited for the meal to come, right? And uh, it was amusing. It was delightful. <laughs> and my palate was very amused. And it got me excited to eat there. And like, there's more of this to come, right? And it was great. Now, here's what wouldn't have been amusing. Is if that would have been the entire meal. That would have been incredibly frustrating, right? So it's important to know that it's a little taste, a little sample, but it's not the meal. So this life, the joy that you can experience in this life in Christ is a little sample, it's a little taste of the meal to come. And if you can keep it in that perspective, it will help you be excited for the life to come in Christ. But if you think that this life is heaven, if you try to turn it into heaven, it'll be incredibly disappointing because it was never meant to be heaven. It's not the meal. It's just that little taste of the meal to come. So I want to invite you in 2022 to intentionally cultivate joy as one of the primary ways that you follow Jesus. So I don't have time to unpack fully what that could look like. That's in another context. But this is a large part of my life, is of how I try to follow Christ, is the way I think about friendship, the way I think about rest, the way I do community, even little things like trying to have something every day that I'm looking forward to, that I do, that I'm excited about, that I just thank God for. I'm trying to cultivate joy in my life that will honor Jesus, and I see it as a part of following him. Do a, a reverse engineering exercise. Think about what your life of joy in Christ would look like, and how could you work that back? What would your habits be that would lead you to that life? What would ultimately pursuing joy in Christ do to the way you watch TV, to the way you interact with your friends and your coworkers, to the, to the way you spend your time uh, at night and in the evenings? Make that a part of what you're doing this year, trying to cultivate joy. So we remember, we rejoice, and then we rest. Verse 11 
says, again, it tells us who will ultimately obtain the gladness of the Lord. It's the ransomed of the Lord. So think about what the word ransom means. Like if there's a ransom up for someone, it's typically a a negative connotation, right? Uh, Here it's a positive connotation, but it's using a similar concept. When there's a ransom on someone's life, what it means is you have to pay often an extreme amount to save that person's life. And this is what this is saying, is that there was an extreme amount paid to buy you out of slavery into freedom. You were ransomed. And maybe for you, exile and the feeling of exile is not primarily from the world or from culture, but you feel like you're exiled from God because of your sin and because of your brokenness. You think that he's distancing you, he's judging you because of your sin. But I want you to look at verse 21 that starts to describe how he ransoms us. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. So there's imagery here about the cup or the bowl, which all through the Old Testament uh, symbolizes the wrath, the anger of God towards sin and brokenness and rebellion of people. And the Israelites have been in some ways drinking the cup of God's wrath. But God is making a promise here to them that in a coming day, God's people would no longer drink the cup of his wrath. They would not have to be under his judgment anymore. They wouldn't have to be in this hopeless state of wrath because God is going to take away that cup from them. How will he do that? Well, immediately before Isaiah 51 and 49 and 50, it's introducing the concept of a servant. This servant, this one will come that will serve God's people. And then in 52 and 53, you have the famous texts about how that servant will be a sufferer. And he will suffer on our behalf. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Why is God able to take the cup of wrath, the cup of staggering, out of our hands? Because he took that cup and he turned around and he handed it to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus, before he goes to the cross in the garden, is saying, God, please take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. And God answers that prayer, no, because he knows that Jesus has to carry the wrath of God, the exile of God, so that we would never have to experience his exile. Jesus takes on the turned back of God so that we would never have to see it and we would only see his face. The reason why we can be ransomed is because Jesus paid the price of his life, his eternal life on the cross to ransom us back from the dead and into life. And he did it by taking the cup of wrath for us. See, Jesus entered exile so that you would never have to. First by coming to earth. See, we celebrate Christmas, Emmanuel, we've been celebrating that, God with us, that he came to us. And that was such a gain for us, but him, for him in a lot of ways it was a loss. He lost heaven, he lost his home, 
He lost his family, his relationship with his father. He left there to come here. He experienced exile. And then on the cross, he experienced the anger of God, the separation of God, so that you and I wouldn't have to. Jesus walks into exile for us. And here is the answer to the Israelites' questioning. He doesn't give them a theoretical response as to why they're suffering or how this will ultimately turn in for good. He gives them a person. And God can't fully explain to them yet why they can't be taken out of suffering now, but he does tell them that his son has entered exile to walk through it with them. And that one day, because he came into exile, he eventually can bring them home to heaven. He will remove his people from exile into eternal bliss forever. That is the answer of God to our questioning. And so because God has taken the cup of wrath away from us, we can find rest in him. Have you allowed his wounds to bring you healing? Not just in a theoretical sense, not just in a substitution sense, although that's true, in a very experiential sense. Have you believed God that he is not holding your sin and your inadequacy and your weakness against you? That there is no separation between you and him, but you have fullness of life in him. Have you allowed yourself to be healed by his wounds? If not, I want to invite you to rest in his goodness. How do we walk through pain and suffering and exile? We walk with the one who entered into exile with us. We rest in him. We rejoice in him. We remember his goodness. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming to get us. Thank you that you haven't abandoned us, that you will never leave us. Thank you that there is joy in your presence. And I I pray, God, that you would help us to be a people, a church of hope and of joy because you've been really, really good to us and it says the right thing about you. So teach us, Lord, how to rejoice. Help us to pursue joy and rest and remembering you in very intentional ways this year. Let us apply the the efforts that some of us give to resolutions and, and being a different person. Let us apply that same type of effort to experiencing you and want to demonstrate your goodness to the world. Yeah, we're we're grateful, God. Thanks for saving us and healing us. We love you. Amen.